fortunately for me, I was able to intubate the patient and uh, my partner uh, checked for lung sounds and we uh, inflated the uh, balloon at the end of it. And uh, we transported him to the hospital and we got him to the emergency room. The physician on duty at that time wasn't aware that we were doing that out into field. So the first thing out of his mind, mouth was, who ordered that patient to be intubated? Or who did it? And I said, I did. He said, well, who ordered you to do it? I said, well, Dr. Nancy Caroline. And he had no idea who she was. Fortunately for us, the nurse that was on duty at that time uh, was made aware of us spending time in the emergency room there at that hospital and time in the intensive care unit and time in the operating room. So she politely told uh, the, the ER physician, well, they're allowed to do that now. Without her assurance, there's no doubt in my mind that I was technically heading for a world of trouble. And fortunately, the very next day, that was Caroline's first stop, was at the emergency room where we had transported the patient to kind of clear things up. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. When I started my career as a volunteer EMS provider, in some of my earliest training programs, I remember being told that there were two watershed events that helped shape how EMS was being delivered in the field. And that's, that is how advanced life support skills, equipment, and treatments were being delivered by trained EMTs and paramedics. The first of those two events was the publication of the white paper, Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Science, uh, Modern Society, that was published in 1966 by the National Academy of Sciences. The second event, as I was told, was the Wedworth Townsend Act passed by the California legislature and signed by Ronald Reagan in 1970, which led to the creation of the Los Angeles County Paramedic Program that in turn produced the television show Emergency that we've talked about on this episode, this podcast before in episodes 1, 16, and 33. But between that white paper in 1966 and the Wedworth Townsend Act in 1970, there was a program that was doing what Johnny Gage and Roy DeSoto were doing years before, literally being the first true paramedics providing, quote, emergency care in the streets and helping to write the book with that same name. Joining me today for this episode to talk about this missing piece of EMS history He's retired from the city of P Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's Bureau of EMS, Assistant Chief John Moon. Chief Moon, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me, Robbie. I really appreciate the opportunity to sit down and speak with you. Well, you know, I'm sure there's uh, a lot of stories over your 35 years or so of working in the city of Petersburg uh, that you could share with us in, in that system. But um, the stories I really want to talk about today happened really before I think you got to, to the city of Petersburg. And I really want to explore that history and the history of the organization known as Freedom House, which really, uh, as I've found out, is where the first paramedics really were practicing in the field. So that's kind of what I want to explore. And um, we can go from there. And let's let's go back to the beginning, if you would, and uh, talk about your history. And how did you get involved in the field of emergency care or being on an ambulance or EMS or whatever that thing was called in the days when Freedom House was just coming up? 
Well, um, myself, I happen to be an orderly uh, in a hospital. Uh, nowadays, they call them nursing assistants because there's no transition between male and female. So they're all groups into one category now. But back then, there were nurse aides and orderlies. So I happened to be uh, working one day and uh, a team of paramedics from Freedom House uh, came to the floor that I was working on and they were doing a inner hospital transport uh, for a patient that was being discharged to home. And uh, I was in the same room with these guys and, and they were dressed in all white, which was the standard uh, hospital attire uh, back during that time. And I couldn't help but notice that the two individuals who were African-American uh, conducted themselves with such confidence and, and professionalism that I was in awe. And they had, they had a portable radio with them and, and it was going off in a low uh, tone. And I, I just stood there staring at them as they transferred the patient from the bed to their uh, stretcher. And I, I, I noticed the patch on their um, uniform. And it said Freedom House Ambulance Service. And I kept looking at the patch that I ended up being in the way of the two paramedics <laughs> because I was so focused on that patch. And once they left, I kind of did some research uh, and, and asked questions to other people to find out where they were located and where they were based at. And I found out that it were based in Presbyterian Hospital, uh, which is today called UPMC. Uh, so I kind of took my lunch hour a couple of days later and made my way to their offices. I asked questions, where is Freedom House's offices? And they, and they told me it was on the 10th floor of Presbyterian Hospital. And I caught the elevator and went up there and uh, walked in and was greeted by a gentleman. And this is where the story kind of gets kind of disappointing because I told him I was there to put an application in to be uh, one of his employees. So he asked me a series of questions. He said, if I gave you a picture of the heart, could you diagram the chambers and label them? Uh, no. Uh, what if I showed you the lungs? Could you tell me uh, what the respiratory tree uh, looked like? Uh, no. He said, okay, well, I can't hire you then. So I left there disheartened, uh, despondent, and any other type of adjective that you could describe being turned away because I had focused so much on working there that I didn't know what it took to get there. So I left and uh, I kind of did some research on my own and uh, I found out that at, in Pittsburgh there was a North Park Fire Training Academy and they was holding an EMT class there. And the class was 13 weeks, uh, two days a week, uh, for four hours a day. So I called out and registered for the class and, and got in it and uh, went through the procedures, the testing and the practical exam and things and passed all that and got my certificate. 
and went right back to Freedom House almost the next day that I got my certificate and was actually hired on the spot. Yeah. So now you could do the diagram of the heart and the lungs. And Absolutely. That was the, absolutely. that was their entrance exam, I guess. Yes. Yes. And what year was correct. this that you, you were going through that process? Uh, somewhere between 71 and 72, okay. uh, that I, uh, came on with, uh, Freedom House. And, uh, Freedom House is, I, I've read some more of the history and looked into it. Freedom House was, had been established by that point for, for maybe, what, four or five years? Yes. Uh, they began in 1967. Let me just re reinforce something here. The, the Wedworth Townsend Act was 1970. So, okay, so we're three years ahead of the legislation in California that created the ability for Los Angeles County to have paramedics. Okay, I just want to want to put this in chronological perspective if you will so a year after the white paper three years before the california bill um created uh the paramedics that, that i that i grew up watching on tv yes and kind of formed a lot of the impressions i have so freedom house had been there in pittsburgh were they serving the whole city of Peter, uh, pittsburgh at the time or was this kind of an area that they were serving Un unfortunately during that time uh we're going back to the 60s um where the Hill District, uh, which is was a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, in today's um, vernacular, you would call it an underserved uh, neighborhood, and and we, we can stick with that, uh, where uh, the individuals that was uh, poverty, uh, low prospects for employment. Um, housing uh, was substandard uh, medical care at that time was uh, basically non-existent uh, to an entire community so, so how, would they, how would they get care in that the hill district that is this call that that neighborhood how did they get care or how did they get treatment in well, the community one one of the ways uh, just like the majority of the other part of Pittsburgh is uh, we had to rely on the police. The problem with that is the, the police at that time, and I'm not necessarily despairing law enforcement or anything like that, uh, there was very little allegiance to that particular neighborhood. So you call, I'll get there whenever I feel like it. And so Whenever they arrived on the scene, they would pick the patient up, lay them in the back of, uh, on a canvas cot that perhaps during that time, they just transported a prisoner or perhaps someone that uh, was intoxicated and probably vomited in the back of the vehicle and things of that nature. And, and both officers would get up front. So you would, you essentially were left to the mercy of those officers and and the transport which was literally just that a transport it's a, it absolutely was to the, to the absolutely so you're if it was a life-threatening emergency the chances of you surviving that ride were virtually non-existent at that particular time fast forward to freedom house um at that particular time uh, president johnson was kind of flooding different cities with uh, federal money uh, to offset uh, a lot of the disparities that were going on 
in those cities. So there was money toward job uh, placement and job training and, and things of that nature. So Freedom House itself was part of that project. And that was voter registration, that was food distribution and things like that. Uh, things such that we would look at today, which would be a food bank and, and things like that. So in essence, Freedom House were responsible for supplying food uh, to the residents of the Hill District, uh, voter registration, job training, and, and things of that sort. So they were the hub of, of, uh, of a way of getting out of poverty during that particular time. So it was a program to kind of lift that community up and the people within it through all those programs you mentioned. Was was EMS or EMT training part of that program to start with, or was that something that came along a little bit later? At the time, no, it was not. Um, that vision came about from a gentleman who's a very good friend of mine, and we're still very close today, by the name of Phil Hallen. He was the president of the Maurice Falk Medical Fund. So it was his vision at that time to say, well, if we have this organization, Freedom House, that can transport food or deliver food uh, to residents and, and things of that nature, why not get medical care to them? So this was Phil's vision. And so Phil went to the board of directors of Freedom House and pitched his idea of trying to uh, get medical transport uh, into that community because there was no way for the residents to get the doctor's appointments. Uh, if you got there, there was no way to get back home. Uh, so if you could come up with a concept and an idea on how to provide that particular neighborhood with those services, then you would obviously solve one of the largest problems that plagued the community. So this wasn't specifically focused on a true emergency care. This was kind of a more holistic medical care, doctor's appointments and such as well. Is, is that how it evolved into it, more emergency stuff? Or was absolutely. It okay. you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, fast forward a couple of months, actually, Phil Halland met with the president whose name was Ed Norian of Presbyterian Hospital. And Ed Norian knew that the head of the anesthesiology department of Presbyterian Hospital, Dr. Peter Saffer, was at that time trying to design a pre-hospital care system uh, from the ground up because it had never been done. It, it essentially didn't exist at all. So Freedom House Board of Directors met with Peter Saffer, whose vision was to institute pre-hospital care into the city, and henceforth was born the concept of Freedom House. Freedom House itself was named Freedom House Mobile Intensive Care Units because Saffer being in charge of critical care medicine, 
came up with the idea that it was a mobile intensive care unit. So in order for it to be a mobile intensive care unit, he had to not only train the personnel, but he had to design the vehicles. He had to design the equipment that went into the vehicles. So between his vision of designing ambulances to transport because the police were a vehicle that you couldn't stand up in the back of and do CPR. So he had to design a vehicle that was top, uh, had room in the top for a person to stand up and perform CPR uh, because he was also trying to design cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So all of this fell right within that confines of the creation of, of Freedom House Ambulance Service, the vehicle, the equipment, as well as the training. Yeah, so he's, he's actually, I mean, of some of the documents I've seen, he was actually, you know, Peter Safar, known as the father of CPR in the U.S. And uh, he's got an interesting backstory about his daughter. He lost his daughter. Yes. Out, out of the hospital. And he kind of realized, hey, if, if somebody in the field knew these skills, maybe my daughter could be alive. Could be alive it sounds today. like that's kind of the the pathway of that what what did um, you know what at the time we're dealing with police officers picking people up putting them in the back of the vehicle taking them to the hospital that's the care they were receiving what type of vision of what types of care did he envision uh providers in the street delivering in in, in pittsburgh at the time what what types of skills and, and equipment were, were he was he coming up with to deliver that care really that's, that's ironic that you asked that question because it's the same identical thing that paramedics are doing today. No different. Obviously, there's been changes and improvements and things of that nature. But we spent time in the operating rooms uh, intubating patients prior to them going into surgery. Spent time in intensive care units uh, actually examining and treating patients that were in ICU, cardiac int uh, intensive care units, spent time in uh, the OB and Lavery delivery suite, assisting in the delivery of uh, infants. Uh, we also spent time in the uh, medical examiner's office, uh, going over anatomy and physiology. Uh, to get a clear meaning of what the body actually uh, consists of. So it was a well-rounded uh, amount of training that uh, we all had to, to go through in an effort to, to uh, be proficient at what we were doing, uh, which also included uh, reading EKGs and, and uh, tracheal intubations starting IVs, uh, we also were the first to actually transmit an AKG from the field back to the emergency room through a system that's called telemetry. Uh, that was on the actual vehicle itself. Uh, so a lot of the things that paramedics do today, uh, Freedom House did years ago, and we were probably so far ahead of our time that it's, it, even today I'm amazed at some of the stuff that we did.
And again, we're talking late sixties for, for some of this technology and equipment, the skills and you came on, uh, kind of after freedom house was established. Let's, let's get you to go back and talk a little bit about the story of the people that were involved. Um, how, you mentioned the two gentlemen you, you saw in that hospital room that day, picking up that patient, um, go back to that first group of people that Dr. Safar trained and educated. What, what, how did they recruit those, um, uh, folks how did they get involved what was their kind of backstory and how they became came into this profession to move the move the needle to what we're doing today that's the beauty of the creation of freedom house primarily because and and when i i give you these descriptions i want you to understand that i was included in that same descriptive terminology um people that were least likely to succeed, uh, hardcore unemployables, which simply meant nobody would hire you, uh, society's throwaways. Uh, these were the type of labels that were actually placed on uh, the trainees at that particular time uh, in an effort to, to kind of muddy the water, for lack of a better term. Uh, but a combination of, of their training and their resilience proved all that to be nothing more than a fallacy. And that's, that's the main thing that I take away because um, all the way up until the last day of Freedom House, and I'm probably jumping ahead, that, that stigmatism still stuck with everybody that actually worked there. So during my time there, uh, I never experienced any drug addicts. I never experienced any alcoholics. Um, any people that were recently released from jail. Or, uh, a lot of the rumors and things that I, I, I uh, call them uh, that put a label on a group of individuals that uh, were doing a job that no one else even envisioned that they could do. And it, it, it sounds like, again, I'm reading some a couple of different uh, sources of information through some uh, magazine articles, some historic sure. accounts. They talked about that group being, you know, a group that hadn't graduated high school or uh, were, were Vietnam veterans back from the war who were down on their luck, that typical homeless kind of veteran that may not have that next mission. And I've, we've talked about, I've heard stories of people coming back from Afghanistan and the wars today, not having that mission. And it sounds like this, this mission of freedom house and the mission to deliver care that became their mission. And that kind of motivated them to go forward. Is that a fair statement or is there some, was there something else going on in there that they just, they finally found a niche that they could fit into? Well, it's a, it's a combination of those two things. Uh, because, uh, remember the people that were training at freedom house had no jobs. So you, you kind of covered that. In addition, they did find their niche in doing something that uh, changed an entire community, uh, a, a particular program that uh, the police themselves were in awe of. Uh, in some instances and in other instances, uh, they welcomed uh, Freedom House 
primarily because there were situations that they knew that were in over their head. So let's call someone that, that knows what they're doing here. Well, I, I can't say I didn't experience that same thing when I've rolled up to a police officer saying, oh, get the medic over here. <laughs> so, yes. so I, I can understand even then it was probably the same way. So uh, having that train set a uh, crew there to, to take over patient care is certainly advantageous to the police officer as well, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you kind of mentioned um, were, were all of the kind of the early – uh, employees or the early medics on in Freedom House, they were coming from that Hill district that underserved um, th- that community. Were all of these African-American men, men or men and women, or were there whites and blacks as well? Or what was the, uh, what was the population of the folks who were working in the early, late sixties? 98, 98% African-American uh, males. Uh, there were, two or three females uh, in the group. Uh, but the majority role of the majority of females were the dispatchers. Okay. Uh, um, there were a couple um, females that were uh, working in the field, but the majority of them were uh, dispatchers. And that was their choice uh, more so than anything else. Uh, so the service itself was 98% African-American males at that time. Uh, and that existed for probably four years at the most. Uh, and what initially happened is Freedom House kind of was built on what I would call fiscal quicksand meaning that we had to rely on grants and donations from this foundation and that foundation and and what have you. So it was problematic to have an all black service constantly made up of of African-Americans requesting donations or uh, uh, grants from say the Heinz Foundation and they wanted to know the makeup of the uh, workforce and things like that. So uh, you had to kind of go outside of the, the norm uh, in reference to uh, your employee base. Now this, uh, we kept mentioning the, the, that um, Hill District community, uh, I'm assuming that's in the city of Pittsburgh. Did, did Freedom House run beyond that specific community where they serve in all parts of the city of Pittsburgh or was it just that pocketed area of the, the community? Um, we were primarily, uh, localized to the Hill district, the Oakland area, which was the area in which, uh, Presbyterian hospital was based at and the business district of downtown Pittsburgh. So essentially, uh, we had a contract with the city of Pittsburgh, even though the Hill district is in the city of Pittsburgh, we had a contract with the city of Pittsburgh to provide service to the downtown uh, section of the city. Remember, this was federal money that was designed exclusively for an impoverished neighborhood. So the service itself had to provide that service for that impoverished neighborhood. And to go outside of there, then uh, that would be an added cost. Right, so so the, the federal funding was to, to provide service to that impoverished area of the Hill District, 
did the city did the city pay Freedom House to serve the business district of Petersburg? Was that a source of revenue for them as well? Obviously not enough to to cover all the operating expenses, but did the city fund Freedom House for that? Call it contractual work in that unimpoverished yes. area. Yes, yes, they did. Um, now, if you're dealing with municipal government, and I spent thirty plus years there. It's a system where if I owe you money, I'll pay you whenever I feel like it. So don't expect, you know, this $50,000 this month to come there every month or whatever the cost was. So that was months where it was there the first half of the month. And then that was months when it came at the end of the month. Uh, So it was not on a regular basis. But we essentially had to to absorb that type of our relationship that we had with the city because we needed that type of funding to provide that service in that particular area. Uh, and that, in its sense, was part of the payroll of, of the employees themselves. Municipal government is not. It's not the best people to have a contract with. Let's just say it's government. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I think everybody who's dealt with government knows what it's government means. Yes. Yes. So let's let's go back to uh, the 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 service being provided. Yeah, I I can recall back to to the early days when I first became a paramedic, and um, I was doing endotracheal intubations in the field. There were some doctors in the emergency room that were, oh, you can't do that. You're not an anesthesiologist, and. I worked in an emergency room for a, a few years as a paramedic in the ER and some mm-hmm. of the nursing staff was, Oh, you're not a nurse. You shouldn't be doing this, that, and the other. So there was a little bit of friction between those professions, doctor, nurses, medics. Uh, what was the working relationship work? What was the working relationship like between the medics of freedom house when they would bring patients into the hospital or when they were doing their clinical time within the hospital to learn those skills and the anatomy and physiology and learn that knowledge? Well, if you are doing your clinical skills in say the Oakland area or the uh, Hill district area, probably in the general area where the hospitals were affiliated with Presbyterian hospital, then you had absolutely no problems. It's when you stepped outside of that comfort zone is where you ran into uh, problems. I I can recall a uh, particular incident that involved myself uh, with Dr. Nancy Caroline, uh, we transported a, a young gentleman that had a syncopal episode uh, while at work. And as we were working on him, doing a history and physical and coming up with his past medical history and stuff of that nature, uh, we were also preparing on how we were going to transmit this information to the emergency room staff. So we went to a emergency room that was not within the confounds or the environment of Freedom House. And to be fair, they were not used to a paramedic coming in and giving you an accurate H&P on a patient, uh, particularly if you're telling them what the EKG strip uh, was and that you started an IV and what the lung sounds were and what the heart uh, sounds were. Uh, it were th- this particular hospital wasn't accustomed to that. So 
I arrived there with a patient such as that. And I decided to give the ER nurse a complete rundown of, of how the patient was when we found him, his past medical history, the physical exam, what we'd done for him, and, and the routine stuff that you normally do today. And when I started and I finished, she bust out laughing. Now, I was serious, but she was laughing and because she had never heard that. Instead of her being in awe, she thought it was amusing. She also, she also looked at the person that was giving it to her also. So I had to, to kind of understand that. So she bust out laughing and walked away. I got upset. And I went back to Nancy Caroline and I told her, I don't know why we even did this. Nobody's going to, you know, they didn't listen to you anyway. So she looked at me and she politely said, if you don't learn to speak the language of the emergency room, no one will ever listen to you. She said, I want you to go back into that emergency room and find a physician. I find, went back and found a physician and did the exact same thing and it was received more uh, on a professional manner. I handed them a copy of the EKG strip and um, we transported the patient uh, over to them and left and we laughed all the way back to our base station because I at that time noticed the difference between uh, being received and not being received. So I had to elevate my mind when I started doing that instead of just going in saying, here, nurse, this is a patient, this is what we did, and blah, blah, blah. But in fairness to her, she was perhaps used to ambulance attendants coming in and dropping patients off, and so not a fully trained paramedic uh, who obviously perhaps did more than perhaps oftentimes most nurses do in the emergency room. And, and could actually speak the language. Absolutely. She was not used to that at all. Well, you, you brought up another legend in the EMS field, um, Nancy Caroline. Uh, when I started paramedic school, and I mentioned it in the, in the intro of the book, that literally the, the, the book of how to become a paramedic was called Emergency Care in the Streets by Nancy Caroline. Uh, talk a little bit about her and her influence in that system. Uh, another person I'd love to have on this podcast to talk about history, but unfortunately she, we, we lost her to cancer a few years back. Yes. Um, so she's no longer with us, but I've got somebody who worked with her back in the day. <laughs> so kind of share with me a little bit about your experience with her as a, as a mentor and a leader, uh, getting you, uh, getting that system up and running in Pittsburgh. Well, Nancy Caroline had no idea what she was getting herself into. She really didn't. And Freedom House itself, we had been, I don't know what terminology, the stepping stone or the step stool for other people coming in to advance their careers into uh, medicine or going off somewhere, starting their own service or, or what have you. So we were kind of... Mm, concerning. Here's this, this white woman coming in 
and she's just using us to advance her career. And, and so, you know, that was, that was this doubt. So that was was just, yeah. Was she here for the right reasons or was she here just to build the resume? Absolutely. So that was a, a level of mistrust there because we had seen it firsthand and it, you know, we're victimized by it. So we kind of looked at her kind of standoffish and she had to gain our trust, which as I'm sitting here talking to you, Robbie, wasn't the easiest thing to do. It really wasn't. And she was able to do that. And that was her first priority. She said, I have to gain the trust of these people if I'm able to, if I'm going to be able to teach them anything, they have to have trust in me. So she did that by letting us know how important we were. And she did that by spending enormous amount of time with us. She would perhaps stay at our base station of operation for anywhere from 24 hours uh, just to go home to take a shower and then come back. Would uh, she would she actually run run calls with the crew? Absolutely, oh. absolutely. If a, a, a serious call came in, she would actually get on the the medic unit and go out with the paramedics uh, themselves and kind of guide them through uh, different procedures that we had learned. Um, she also was on the air twenty four seven. So we knew that we were always being watched. And it wasn't something that we thought that she was looking to to uh, criticize or to get rid of people or whatever the case was. She was watching us primarily because she wanted to find if there was any weak links, what she could improve on and things. So once we noticed that she cared about us as individuals, then the trust started building and the confidence started building and, and the communication started building. And, and, and it got to a point where she became sort of like a family member. And it's, it's amazing because I remember one time we were doing clinicals at a hospital and we were going to the intensive care unit. Now, if you can try to envision a five foot two white woman walking down the hall with four black guys with afros and beards dressed in white walking right through the doors of the intensive care unit, not stopping to talk to anyone, not asking permission, but walking right through the the patient's bedside and start a conversation with them and examining her. Normally, doctors really don't even do that. But that, she was our ticket to the intensive care unit. She was our ticket to uh, doing different things in the emergency room that had never been, been done before. So the confidence and the trust was at an all-time high to the point that when we would go, um, say, for a lunch break, we would often go to restaurants in the Hill District. So you have what they call soul food. 
So we would take Nancy Caroline with us into these restaurants and introduce us, introduce her to the cultural uh, food. And she became accustomed to, to, to eating soul food. And, and so it's almost, it's almost like this kind of symbiotic relationship. She was taking you guys, you, you guys and the guys from freedom house into her environment absolutely in the ICU in turn, you were taking her into that, into our, into that other environment to experience soul food. And that's that's pretty interesting to see that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. And, and it's interesting because I, I remember, uh, a couple of experiences I had, but one really stands out with the exception of one I talked to you about at the hospital. I went on a call and I was the first person to intubate a person outside of the hospital. It had never been done before. And we had a person that uh, was a COPD patient and he had labored breathing and things of that nature. And, you know, the way paramedics do things today is the things that we did back then. We call in and uh, speak to a physician and give them a medical report, and they uh, suggest you do A, B, C, D, and E. So I called her and told her what we had and told her the past medical history and the EKG findings and the long sound and the whole works. Now, after I did that, I expected her to say, okay, uh, transport the patient. She told me to intubate the patient. I thought she had lost her mind. <laughs> so now this patient is breathing, but he had at labored breathing and things of that nature. And she said, I want you to intubate the patient and start an IV and transport him to the hospital. And I said, you want us to do what? <laughs> Repeat I that. want you to intubate the patient and transport him. So we got all of our equipment together and laid it out on the floor and, and, and I grabbed the stethoscope and, and, and um, the laryngoscope. And the tube back then, I'm trying to get you to vision this, was not the clear plastic tubes that you have nowadays. They were the hard rubber uh, intubation tubes and they had a metal tip on the end. So that was not very much flexibility <laughs> with yeah. the tube at all. But old school. Yes, yes. Fortunately for me, I was able to to intubate the patient, and uh, my partner uh, checked for lung sounds, and we uh, inflated the uh, balloon at the end of it, and uh, we transported him. Now that wasn't the the end of the problem. We transported him to the hospital and we got him to the emergency room. Now this patient is intubated. The physician on duty at that time wasn't aware that we were doing that out into field. So the first thing out of his mind mouth was who ordered that patient to be intubated or who did it? And I said, I did. He said, well, who ordered you to do it? I said, well, Dr. Nancy Caroline. And he had no idea who she was. Fortunately for us, the nurse that was on duty at that time uh, was made aware of us spending time in the emergency room there at that hospital and time in the intensive care unit and time in the operating room. So she politely told uh, the, the ER physician, well, they're allowed to do that now. 
so he subsequently received it. But without her assurance, there's no doubt in my mind that I was technically heading for a world of trouble. You were going to get and, in trouble one way. Yes, or the absolutely. And fortunately, the very next day, that was Caroline's first stop. Was at the emergency room where we had transported the patient to, to talk uh, to that doctor. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm, to kind of clear things up. Mm-hmm. So uh, those were 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 stories that that you know I personally can be very proud of. Now there were other paramedics that were intubating um, at Freedom House also. Uh, it's just that I was the very first to actually do it outside of a hospital. That was your. That was yours. Well, uh, you know, what else? I, you know, we, this is the, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, uh, the r- racial issues surrounding that time. I know I read one story where Freedom House medics uh, during the riots after uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Freedom House medics were actually on, in police cars uh, out in the street taking care of patients when that was going on. Uh, talk a little bit, if you'd like to, or if you can, about how race relations played a role in provision of care or being able to work in that environment, either in the hospital or out in the field treating patients? Well, what, what you have to try to keep in mind is the Hill District itself, uh, like I said, by today's vernacular, was an underserved community. So there was very little concern or care from government about that community within itself. So... There were times when the police would not give Freedom House the serious calls. They would give them to a, a police paddy wagon. Even, so, even though you guys were able to provide care, they were still just picking them up and putting them in a, in a car. Absolutely. Take, okay. Because we, at that particular time, were looked at from a racial standpoint as a threat. And so what we did is, in an effort to offset that, you know, because you couldn't send a letter to the superintendent of police and say, stop your officers from going on call because we didn't have that much clout. What we did is we start, we, we bought a scanner and we start monitoring the police's radio. And the scanner was at the base station. And if a life-threatening call, i.e. a terrible auto accident or or a gunshot victim or a drug overdose or what have you, or a stroke or a heart attack or whatever the case was, would come over that scanner. They would most often be sending a police wagon all the time. We would jump on the call and beat the police there at the scene, take the patient, put him in our vehicle, treat him, and oftentimes we would pass the police going to the call while we were transporting the patient to the hospital. So there were different ways where we had to uh, come up with ideas to improvise uh, of not having the care provided to the residents of the Hill. Now you talked about the the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, At that particular time, it was a turbulent time in just about every city, and the Hill District was no different. Uh, police at that particular time were known as the enemy. 
So in an effort to make sure that the residents were not impacted by uh, the problems that we were all used to doing, we placed paramedics from Freedom House inside a police paddy wagon or a car. And we turned the lights on to let them know that there was an African-American person in that vehicle. Because, to, let the, to let the neighborhood, the residents know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because during that time, it was, it was riots going on. So people were throwing bottles and rocks and things. So you, you, you have to, to think about what it looked like then. Your, your police force at that particular time were 98, 99% white males. So um, there was no doubt that the police had no allegiance to the black community. They could mm-hmm. care less about them. I, I'm, I'm an officer. I'm here to do a job and things of that nature. So uh, I'm the person in charge. I got the badge. I got the gun. You do what I tell you to do and when I tell you to do it. So that was the type of relationship uh, that existed back then. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm nowhere near naive enough to say things are perfect today, but I, I hope I'm accurate in saying things are better than they were in the 60s. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's like night and day, uh, essentially. Uh, obviously, you have your, your police department, fortunately, is more diverse yep. than it was uh, back then. Um, the training, uh, is a lot better. Um, it's your, your police department is more inclusive, uh, given, uh, the environment back in the sixties and early seventies, uh, that actually existed. Uh, it was nothing, uh, for me to go to a, a, a automobile accident and the police were there, uh, and I can recall a situation where the car was just mangled and they were there pulling the patient out of the car without any immobilization or what have you. So me and my infinite wisdom decided to say, no, 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 you can't do that. Just let us do it. What did I say that for? I, you know, I was not politely told, uh, I was cussed out and called a variety of different names and then threatened with arrest after a certain amount of profanity, lace tirade that these officers were giving us. So we had no choice but to allow them to do what they do. Uh, On the flip side of that, I remember a call we went on where the police arrived on the scene in one of the affluent neighborhoods, and we'll get into that too. Uh, And they didn't know what to do. So they call in the radio and say, could you send Freedom House over here? It was a kid that was struck by a Port Authority bus on his bike, and uh, his legs were kind of mangled, and he was obviously going into shock, and they panicked. So they called in and says, could you send Freedom House over here? And the dispatcher politely told them, I can't do that because it's not their district. And the officer responded, well, 
I don't care whether it is or not. We need someone over here that knows what the hell they're doing. So we, once again, were monitoring their calls and we actually jumped on the call and because it was out of our district, we weren't allowed to go to these particular areas and jumped on the call and got there and undoubtedly saved the kid's life and transported them to the emergency room. So was that kind of a scenario of um, those officers, you know, we're working in the old school mindset. We throw them in a paddy wagon. We take them to the hospital. That's how we do this. Then they saw the type of work you and your colleagues were doing in the field and treating patients and taking care of them and actually delivering care better than they were doing. Were they individually had seen that and go, okay, I, I know this Freedom House crew. They can come in here and treat this patient better than, than I ever could just throwing them in the back of a car. Was that was there that slow mindset change? The more experience those police officers had to what you guys were doing, the more you won them over over time. Which, which is true to a certain extent. Uh, they perhaps may have heard about us as opposed to actually seeing it. Uh, and over a period of time, there was a change of mindset. It was a very minute change because you're still dealing with. Um, a political environment. You're still dealing with the the, the ugliness of racism uh, that was going on that we, as an organization, uh, continued to be victimized by. So um, change, even though it was resistant on a much larger scale, it gradually, very minutely uh, started to come by. And uh, oftentimes we could say that Freedom House was a victim of its own success. Well, that's, uh, it kind of takes me to the, to the kind of the next train of thought. You know, the, everything I read says Freedom House was in existence from 1967 to 75. Yes. So okay. they were providing care in Hill District and around uh, Pittsburgh in that window. What, you know, obviously they, they were a victim of their success. They showed how uh, doctors and nurses could train paramedics to deliver care in the field and deliver better care in the field than a police officer in the back of a paddy wagon. What was the next evolution of care in and around Pittsburgh? What happened to Freedom House? How did, how did they evolve into, I'll call it extinction for lack of a better mm-hmm. word or lack of mm-hmm. knowing where they go. What, what mm-hmm. happened to Freedom House and how did that transition take place? Well, two things Freedom House had problems competing in a political environment and a racist environment. We could not compete in that environment. So as a result, you had, remember when I said the affluent neighborhoods that we were not allowed to uh, respond in. Filed a formal complaint with the mayor. That community did? Yes. Okay. Or a lot of the other communities. How dare you allow those people in that rundown, poverty-stricken neighborhood have better care than me, and I pay taxes. I own my home. I contributed to your re-election. Uh, campaign, or I'm uh, 
the CEO of this company or own this business or whatever. What is wrong with you? And to give that, to give your words, those people, that, those that's lower socioeconomic yes. community better care than we're getting here. Absolutely. The nerve of you. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what happened. And as a result of that, the city, through pressure from outside influences, I'll call them, uh, decided not to renew Freedom House's contract for the following year. So Freedom House ceased operations in October of 1975. Not only that is the city of Pittsburgh started its own EMS service, um, which was 98% white males. There was no room in that system initially for Freedom House. So there was a lot of political rhetoric, accusations going on and things of that nature. So to minimize the embarrassment, the city said, okay, I will enter into an agreement to take all of your equipment, I'll take all of your people, I'll just bring them over into my system. And that was in writing. What the people at Freedom House failed to realize is that even though the city agreed to hire you as an employee, there was no agreement to keep you. So the department, and we're going back 40 something years, had a systematic way of eliminating as many of Freedom House's employees as they possibly could. And they were very, very, very successful at doing that. To the point where Freedom House ended with 30 people. The city of Pittsburgh um, probably during that time had, I would say, roughly about 10. Of those 30. Of those 30. The rest of the individuals were out of work. The dispatchers... Um, were placed in menial jobs. Uh, one particular dispatcher was uh, assigned to frisking prisoners at the county jail. Um, another Freedom House employee was assigned to the Public Works Department, pumping gas for city vehicles. Um, the majority of the other ones were just put back out onto the street. Um, and it was due to uh, a survival of the fittest type of mentality. The department as a whole was determined to remove any mention of Freedom House, period. It was as if it never existed. And as a result, they were very successful at doing that up until a certain point. And one of the reasons I say that is 
when I came over, that whole system was in place. We're trying to get rid of all these African-American people out of our system. And the way to do that is to put them through a rigorous retraining process. Essentially, here I am telling you, Robbie, that I was the first person to intubate a person outside of the hospital. When I went to the city of Pittsburgh, I was not allowed to treat anyone. And so they basically brought you in as a third with, with nothing, with, with, with nothing. essentially it was no as training. If I, it, it was as if I was never trained. So what was their, their training program like for the for this new stand-up EMS bureau or division or whatever it was called back then? Did Were they um, partnered with you know, the same people at the hospitals that were training Freedom House medics, or were, did they go to another organization? They went to another organization. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a lot of battling going back and forth between Nancy Caroline and Pittsburgh EMS's administration. She wanted to be the medical director. As long as she was there, she could vouch on the training that each and every one of those people had. That wasn't the plan. The plan was to retrain everyone to the training of another facility. Despite the fact that we wrote the book, the training was not accepted. So essentially, I came in with all of this training, was trained by Dr. Nancy Caroline and Dr. Peter Saffer in the operating room and what have you. None of that mattered. None of that matter. One. You mm-hmm. got to start from scratch. I had to start from scratch. And you're talking about karma. I would say 75% of the people that the C hired at that time, and I'm not trying to downgrade them in any way, shape, or form, they had absolutely no experience at all. And the way I found that out, was I went on a call with the crew. Now, I'm the third person. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm just sitting, riding in the back, observing. We went to a call. We had an individual that was unconscious, not breathing, didn't have a heartbeat. The crew went in, discovered this patient in this status, and they panicked. They had never had a life-threatening situation before. And the first thing they did when they saw the patient is they turned around and looked at me and said, you take over. So at that particular time, I in turn instructed, I want you to set up the intubation kit. I want you to uh, start an IV. Uh, I'll put the patient on the monitor and then we'll, you know, put all this together. So I essentially worked the cardiac arrest uh, as a third wheel because the crews had no idea. Untrained, uncertified person because you had experience and they didn't. Absolutely. You're absolutely absolutely correct. Well, I'm I'm sure there's a whole lot of other stories surrounding that time frame. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's kind of you walk through what happened to your career because it sounds like you you stayed stuck with Peter's. Oh, Petersburg. Why well, I keep saying Petersburg? Pittsburgh. We got a Petersburg city right just <laughs> south of us here, so I keep saying Petersburg, not Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yes. So it's you stayed with Pittsburgh. It sounds like and and had a full career there. 
Uh, kind of talk me through that process of, of where your career went from that point. Well, it was quite interesting. Uh, remember, I came over from Freedom House. Um, I, in turn, discovered that the intent of the department was to prove that these individuals could not do the job. And once I discovered that, I had to kind of, for lack of a better term, strut my stuff. I, I, I had to say, this is what this is. This is what the CKG strip is. This is, and I became the instructor on the cruise that I was working with. It sounds like you, your mission became to set out to prove them wrong in, right. in the long scheme of things. You're okay. absolutely correct. And I, I, I give, because there was a lot of perseverance and determination all built into that. And I learned that from working at Freedom House. And the longer I stayed there, the more determined I became. So as I started going up through the ranks in the department, I noticed that the department itself steady kept getting whiter and whiter and whiter and whiter. And I had made myself a promise that if I ever got into a position to change that look, I would spend the remaining part of my career doing that. So as I got to certain positions, it afforded me opportunities to to look at the diversity within the department. Now we're talking about a department that was 98% white. The career path was created by a 98% black organization. So complete turnaround. Pittsburgh EMS, sadly to say, went 10 years without hiring an African-American. I, Fortunately for me, I had gotten in a position where I could change that. So I voiced my concerns to my department head. My department head, ironically, as it seems, how, how things evolve, I was his preceptor. <laughs> he knew what it felt like to be a minority because he did his precepting on Freedom House. While he was, oh. Okay. Yes. So he was completely intimidated. So I kind of took him under my wings and and kind of guided him through the procedures. So as he rose up through the ranks, he never forgot that. So once I got into a position, I voiced my concerns and I designed the first diversity recruitment program for the city of Pittsburgh, not Pittsburgh EMS, but for the city of Pittsburgh, the city. because there was wow. nothing, nothing there. And we went, and it was based on the way Freedom House was designed. I went out into the community through job fairs and through personal appearances, recruiting African-Americans because I wanted to change the face of Pittsburgh EMS because it was three, 4% African-Americans. So I did that. But what I failed to realize, <laughs> as, as fate will have it, is 
and it's probably not funny, but I can laugh at it now because I've been gone so long. As I was trying to change the face of the department, I was damaging my own upward mobility in the department. So the department had a history of a lot of the positions were um, appointments. So if you served in one position based on experience that you had, it made you eligible for an upward mobility. So I was a crew chief, which made me eligible to become a supervisor. Uh, as I was a supervisor, it made me eligible to become chief supervisor, which I had 10 supervisors. Another position, and I'm still out there recruiting, unbeknownst to me, I had hit the glass ceiling. And I didn't know it until a position above me became available. Instead of moving into the next upward position, I was passed over for the promotion and given to a white male. I had been his boss for 15 years. And not only that, I was ordered to teach him <laughs> how to do that job. Yeah, how to do my job. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, the first two years were troublesome. From that point on up until the last five uh, were great. The last five were rather hellish because as I voiced my complaint and concerns, I received a backlash from doing that. And I subsequently had to file a lawsuit against Pittsburgh EMS for racial discrimination in their promotional process. Mm -hmm. And you don't do that with your employee and expect not to receive backlash. So right. I, I, I was, I ran the department for 15 years, everything, hiring, firings, promotions, everything went through John Moon. I was relegated to teaching CPR and taking complaints. That even the supervisors, I had been their boss for 15, 16 years. They were not allowed to, to listen to anything I say. Wow. So I endured that for a couple of years and, you know, uh, I subsequently filed a lawsuit and um, I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to stay to show you how strong I am mm -hmm. or to cut my losses and retire. So I was forced into retirement. But despite all that, I still love the department. I still love the people that work there. I still keep in contact with the people that work there. Um, I have no animosity toward Pittsburgh EMS whatsoever. None. Well, I appreciate your spirit for that. That's um, <laughs> quite quite the story. It's unfortunate that yourself and I'm sure others like you are go undergoing those same mm -hmm. kind of things today, and that's unfortunate. And I don't know. Hopefully, keep, we'll keep our fingers crossed that one day we'll never have to deal sure. with that. But sure. I'm a realist as well. There are there are people doing what people do, and right. You're absolutely. Uh, right. Hopefully, sharing your story will will kind of enlighten folks as to what's going on. So. Um, I kind of try, usually wrap these up 
with one question at the end, but I'll kind of open the floor up to you. And one mm-hmm. of the things you and I talked about on the phone a few days ago was kind of what your mission is today. And, um, and, and talking about the history of freedom house. And you mentioned where we were talking just now that kind of Pittsburgh was like, let's, let's set that freedom house history aside and ignore, pay no attention to the, to that crew behind the curtain over there that did this for, you know, seven or eight years. Yes. And really broke ground on how we do EMS even today. Uh, your mission today is to kind of bring light onto the Freedom House effort and what went on back then. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Uh, yes. Um, one of my, my missions, obviously, is to keep that legacy alive. And here in Pittsburgh, uh, we have a task force uh, that had used the Freedom House model to recruit, uh, I would say, disadvantaged individuals into the EMS career. Um, and it's called Freedom House 2.0. Now we've subsequently got probably six or $700,000 grant uh, from UPMC and workforce partners and things. And we're working on another grant uh, to uh, expand the program outside of Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh. Um, to other outside surrounding communities uh, under the memory of Freedom House itself. Um, In addition to that, uh, I, on a continuous basis, go around to different community groups and different organizations uh, talking about the history of EMS. I go to different churches and right now it's EMS week. So last Saturday I was at a church, uh, giving them the history of Pittsburgh EMS, I was able to have Pittsburgh EMS send a vehicle over with paramedics on it so the people uh, could see it. Uh, in one of the high schools, there is a uh, Freedom House 2.0 uh, EMS curriculum uh, that teaches the students how to be uh, EMTs. Uh, the Freedom House 2.0 uh, program is so unique that we've been able to uh, kind of give the people that pass the course preferential treatment to get hired by the city of Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh has a two-tiered system. They have EMTs and paramedics. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're teaching the ENT curriculum uh, in that program where the students are selected they're in class eight hours a day for about 10 or 12 weeks. They're actually paid a salary uh, or stipend to actually go uh, to class. They spend time on Pittsburgh EMS's units, time in the emergency room. Uh, they even spend time um, on lifelike helicopters to actually, so they get a, a well-rounded uh, introduction into the field of EMS because I'm a firm believer that uh, exposure equals opportunity. And as long as we can continue to expose uh, people to the legacy that Freedom House uh, created, I think uh, it'll remain. I would like to see uh, the history of EMS taught in every paramedic training program, uh, every EMT training program. there's a specialty now for emergency physicians. I would like the history of, of EMS taught in that program. Uh, 
anyone that comes into, say, Pittsburgh DMS and orientation program, I, I would like to see them uh, taught the history of EMS because you still have people that work for Pittsburgh EMS that have never heard of Freedom House Internet Service. Wow. So uh, that's one of the, the ways there are right now a couple of books that are written on the uh, legacy that Freedom House uh, done. One will be coming out in November. It's called American Sirens. Another one came out, I guess, two or three years ago. It was called The First Responders. Uh, that one kind of entailed my career uh, from my childhood all the way up to Freedom House uh, and the city of Pittsburgh. You can actually you can actually Google it and and I think get a copy. That's what I was getting ready to ask you. you know, where, where, yeah, can, uh, where can folks yeah, get a hold can, of that one? Yeah, you can uh, Google uh, first responders, first responders. Uh, by Kevin Hazard. Kevin Hazard. Yeah, and I'll see if I can find it maybe and put a link up in uh, with the podcast mm -hmm. so folks. Can and get to his it. other book that I collaborated with him on is American Sirens. Uh, I believe that's coming out uh, in November of this year. Uh, the Heinz History Center here in Pittsburgh has a display, and it's not like a real small one. It's a huge display about the history of Freedom House. Um, the Uni Stanford University uh, did a story. Uh, New England Journal of Medicine, the most prestigious medicine journal in the world, uh, there's an article in there regarding Freedom House. Uh, Harvard University. Dr. Caroline donated all of her writings and, and memorabilia to Harvard University. Wow. Uh, and so everything she dealt with, all her writings about Freedom House, uh, including pictures and everything like that, uh, is in Harvard University. Uh, University of Pittsburgh has an archive about the legacy of Freedom House. So uh, it's a vision that that I've made it my mission once I retired to try to keep that alive uh, because uh, I know the, the struggles and the disappointments and um, the broken promises that the people that created this career path had to go through to make it what it is today. And uh, I promised to do everything in my power to keep that vision alive. And I really, really, really can't thank you enough for having me on to kind of relive this part of history. Well, John, thank you for, for sharing it. Like I said, I, I kind of stumbled into uh, a podcast you were highlighted on. It's, uh, I think the title of it is 99% Invisible. Yes. Yes. A little bit, little bit of a different format and setup. There mm -hmm. were a couple other interviews, kind of short form. Uh, and I certainly wanted to dig into a little bit more of the granularity of it, which we've done today. And I'm certain we've, we've just brushed the surface of some of the history, some of the, mm -hmm. some of the characters, you know, hearing, hearing stories about Nancy Caroline, the, the doctor who literally wrote the book that I learned from yes. uh, is valuable. And uh, if there's anything I can do or share to help you share that story, because like I said, I, when I came along, it was the white paper, the Wedgworth Townsend act out of California. And then, then that's kind of where it started for me. And uh, I think mm -hmm. we missed a huge chunk of, you and your colleagues at Freedom House that kind of paved the way and um, 
maybe say did good work because if you had done bad work or done poor work, somebody else would have been pointing at you and see this isn't the way to this do is, it. Yeah, this is and, uh, right. You, you guys did it correct. right, it sounds like, and saved lives and kind of paved the way for a lot of folks uh, on uh, in all kinds of communities and from all kinds of backgrounds to be mm-hmm. in this job. So uh, thank you and your colleagues for that. Anything else you want to close with or anything else you want to touch base on or – Heck, let's get together again some other time and tell some more stories. That'd be we, that'd be ideal too. We, we could definitely do that. I'd love to do that. Um, my main concern is is to keep the memory of all of the individuals that work there because a lot of them uh, are no longer with us, and um, some of them uh, have even been pushed back onto the street from where they came. So. I was one of the blessed ones where I spent 34 years with the city of Pittsburgh. I left there with a pension and and, an opportunity such as this, but so many others that helped create this career path were not as blessed as I am. So I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the organization and to those people. And that's what motivates me to be involved with this now. Well, if there's anything we can do to, to help you with that effort, uh, certainly by sh- I'm going to share this podcast as widely as I can and uh, get that word out because this is a piece of history. I think we, we certainly don't want to forget and uh, pay tribute to you and your colleagues that kind of paved the way for, for me and my colleagues and the next generation <laughs> of folks yes. that came through. So, yes. so uh, again, uh, Assistant Chief John Moon retired from uh, the city of Pittsburgh, Bureau of EMS. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your service to the community in, Pits- in and around Pittsburgh uh, and being with me today. Uh, for anybody who wants to help support this podcast, make sure you check out patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast and follow along on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at uh, FD logbook or FD logbook podcast. And uh, again, any comments or questions for me or uh, chief John moon, send them to my, my attention and I'll certainly pass them along. And maybe that'll be the topic of our next podcast about questions from the history books. And uh, you can email me at firehouse logbook at gmail.com. Chief moon. Thanks again for being with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, and I look forward to it.